is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 22, previewing the Fifth Global Nash Congress, which will take place in London on May 26th and 27th. This conversation focuses largely on issues of gut microbiome and weight loss, as discussed at the conference. Rachel Zayas takes a lead role in talking about the importance of microbiome, and as she notes, people describe it as the second human genome, although it may even be more powerful than the first genome, given that we have 10 cells of microbes for every human cell in our body. Louise Campbell discusses implications for weight loss, and the group discusses how important weight loss is as compared to macronutrient composition and nature of diet. And I learned some tips from a lifetime experience about good and bad ways to lose weight and what that might mean in terms of keeping it off and maintaining nutrient composition. What made this episode so interesting and enjoyable for me was not only to consider some of the topics of the Congress, but also the different conversations that arose spontaneously from the surfers and our guests. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Let's dive into our content. What we're going to do today is we're going to review the 5th Global Nash Congress, which comes up at the end of May 26th and 27th in London. We will be doing at least one day of live coverage from the conference, possibly two, probably one, and then probably a wrap-up episode at the end, but as media partners. But they've got, so far, 30 speakers on their list and a variety of different topics. And what I was hoping we would do today was, in one sense of the word, at least start at the beginning and go to the end, by which I mean start by taking they talk on their agenda page about five different categories of topics. And I'll just give you the headlines on those. In their summary, they discuss that their topics include recent updates in pathogenesis, preclinical and translational strategy, new targets for treatment of NASH fibrosis, and then non-invasive biomarkers and diagnostic tools, clinical development, clinical trial data, and then regulatory updates. So I want to kind of start at the top of the chain and go to the bottom. So uh, talk about the preclinical and the uh, updates in pathogenesis first, and then we'll do the non-invasive clinical development development second and regulatory third. And I would like one of you to pick a paper or a uh, topic that you see in this agenda that you think might be particularly interesting and just dive in. Mention what it is, what the headline is, why you think it might be interesting. And uh, we'll go back to typical brave one, go first. Jörn Schattenberg. Yeah, before we actually dive into the content, Roger, let me say, you know, there's been a number of NASH meetings out there and the fifth global implicates, you know, I think it had a break over the COVID year, but it's the fifth one on this. And I think I went to the first in person and then followed the other ones. For me, it was always very interesting because it had strong industry involvement. I mean, there are key speakers from the companies that run the clinical trials. And I think this is one of the uh, specialities of that Congress, if I if I think about a top line and, you know, how does it fit into that NASH meeting schedule uh, that we're seeing these days? I think that makes that makes it special. I agree with that, Jorn. I think that is one of the things that makes it special. The other thing that makes it special is that they make sure to incorporate discussions on regulatory. And last year, the regulatory discussions wound up really highlighting that both FDA and EMA were willing to consider the idea that you did not have to regress fibrosis to meet a fibrosis standard. And that was, I think, a newer thought. It came up a little bit at NASHTAG, had not been around much in 2020. So that was a big deal. I'm going to be intrigued when we get to the end of this to see what they come up with this year. But thank you for the lead-in. And with that, let's dive in because we have lots to cover, not a ton of time to do it. Who would like to jump first, preclinical or um, pathogenesis? Rachel Zayas. I'll dive in. So I'm really excited. I don't know if there's a specific 
specific talk, but I'm excited to hear more about updates on gut microbiome and the association with disease. I think it's a completely underexplored aspect of the human genome. It's often been referred to as the second human genome, if not even the primary, because for every one cell of human cells that we have in the body, there's 10 cells of, of microbes. So I really think that there is a world of opportunities to understand signaling and understanding from both diagnostics perspective as well as therapeutic. And we're really just getting to a time where we can do deep sequencing to understand the gut microbiome and the role in, in NAFLD and fibrosis. Interesting. So there's one on nutrient sensing IGF-1 signaling in NAFLD the second day from Professor Chen at Berkeley which looks to me like you might be, that would be on a related topic, maybe a couple of others as I flip along. Um, a lot more actually on weight loss, interestingly enough, a whole bunch of stuff on weight loss in this meeting, but okay. Other, other thoughts, comments? I mean, to follow up on Rachel's comment, I think um, that the challenge with the microbiome is always to understand its complexity and get a standardized readout within the clinical trials. And there's going to be some clinical trial data that's being discussed also. Uh, Becky Taup's going to discuss their phase three program. This is uh, really the microbiome's exploratory scientific part, I think, of this. And we're not in the space to fully include that at more advanced stage clinical trials. However, it is an extremely interesting. And just to follow up, maybe Rachel, your take-home disease activity biomarker or monitoring tool from your perspective of being deeply involved in genome analysis and diagnostics, where would this fit in just from a technical perspective? I mean, what can we achieve? What type of technologies do you have? What do you think would come in handy here with a microbiome? Absolutely. So I think the first question we need to ask is what is the standard microbiome? This is why I'm alluding to the idea that this is still very much preclinical and basic science today because we don't even know what the standard is. And so when we can get an understanding of what the standard is compared to perhaps monitoring long-term outcomes because your microbiome is dynamic, it's ever-changing, and I think that it might not be sensitive enough to be used as a staging tool or a diagnostic tool in the sense that a diagnostic tool in the sense of staging, but rather predicting long-term outcomes. So what are the pathways that are getting dysregulated as patients are healthy, patients with dyslipidemia, patients with early-stage NAPLD? So I I think that if I had to hypothesize, this could be a tool for long-term outcomes, but it's so early right now that there's nothing grounded to base that on. But that's where I see this going in that direction. Sure. But I think then you really got to be talking about the cirrhotic population, which is more closer to outcomes. And there's some good data from the cirrhosis in general, not just NASH cirrhosis being generated, that um, they predict decompensating events and you can modulate that with some of the therapeutics we're using in clinics today. I think here you're right. Completely naive question. But if a lot of the places that have certain kinds of diet challenges around food insufficiency and where calories come from are in same subpopulations that tend to be defined as having PNPLA3 deficiencies or challenges, does that tie into this set of issues or does that go somewhere else? 
I think it could, because in the sense when, when there's genomic rearrangements, that can drive disease. So for most of the last 50 years, we've only looked at protein coding genes on the, on the, on the human genome. And we're really starting to look at these non-coding regions, which is 98.5% of the human genome. And when you have these certain high-risk alleles, they may or may not rearrange those non-coding regions, which has an influence on the microbiome. So those are absolutely associated. And I think we're just starting to ask questions in this capacity. So there's really a wealth of knowledge to understand. And I think that we're getting there with the cost of sequencing has come down so exponentially in the last 15 years that we really can ask these questions and monitor patients long term to see what changes over time and what is standard, what is the norm and what changes and and disease. Okay. Other questions or thoughts on microbiome issues? Louise Campbell. I remember at um, NASHTAG, Scott Harris did a very interesting session and I asked a question which wasn't raised in the room, but Scott actually contacted me and I had a personal one-to-one session with Scott Harris discussing the effect of micronutrient problems in the rapid weight loss that they see. So I'm looking forward to his session on day two at three o'clock, following up on the weight loss, because there is a number of micronutrient imbalances that occur in the rapid weight loss and how that they affect or don't affect patients in clinical trials. So obviously the gut microbiome is altered in that and quality of diet we are seeing but there was a bit of information out at EASL last year and ARSL that the quality of diet actually improved the liver steatosis in preference to weight loss. All of these as has been discussed already today shed new light on it's not always quantity of weight loss it's actually the quality and how you lose it and what you lose it with which may well benefit a lot of people now we can measure internal liver fat with simple tools like fiber scan but mri pdff and all of the other measurements if they don't feel that they've really got to bend over backwards to lose something that's unachievable everybody's own weight loss because of better technologies better non-invasive which we're going to discuss in this meeting as well may well prove the key to success in each individual person's care pathway for losing losing weight and altering their liver fat. Let me follow up on that. It's something that's been intriguing to me is, of course, the type. It's Weight loss is the one thing, but the type of eating behaviors. And there's been a recent paper in Hepatology Communications, oh, I think it was JEP Reports, where they reported on the time-restricted feeding concept. Not so much about, you know, absolute weight loss, but also changing the pattern of macronutrient or micronutrient uptake. And I think this also has an effect. So the complexity here comes in again. When do you eat? What do you eat? What are your germs doing with that? And, and what is the genome that you have? and how to respond to it. I mean, this sounds very complex. I think in the end, it's not. It's so much body weight can be measured. We can measure, as you said, liver relevant or tools, diagnostics like liver fat. And that way we can counsel our patients. But the answer in my experience, and maybe Ian can say something, it's very different from what a patient can do for himself. You know, they start at a different level. Some have this type of nutritional problem and they might need a different uh, nutritional solution compared to someone who overfeeds on, let's say, orange juice, just to make an extreme. It's a, a really valid point. The best mechanism for, for weight loss is what works for that patient. There was a paper just out in the New England Journal last week, a small randomized trial of time-restricted eating alongside calorie restriction versus calorie restriction alone and there's no difference in weight loss between the groups so it probably doesn't matter you know to the whole population how you lose your weight but to the individual it's really important and and some of that sort of personalizing message is i guess lost in those sort of aggregate studies but working out what it is for 
or the individual, you know, having lots of tools in your toolkit to offer different patients different interventions is probably the key in the sort of personalized medicine approach to to weight loss in the clinic. Speaking as somebody who's lost a bunch of weight in his lifetime and then had to figure out how to keep it off and has finally done so, I mean, comedian Jackie Gleason once famously said he was the best weight loss champion of all time. He'd lost a thousand pounds. It was the same 50 pounds 20 times. Uh, I've watched friends lose a lot of weight and gain it as fast as they lost it. So I increasingly think it's less about losing weight per se than figuring out what behaviors you need to overcome the systems in your body that are creating the challenge in the first place. And clearly that's going to be linked to all the issues, the physiologic issues we're talking about. But from personal experience, you don't know exactly what your physiology is when you're trying to lose weight in a way that you can keep it off. You might figure it out over time. I know some things about myself, but therefore it becomes, uh, I think one of the reasons it becomes so challenging for physicians as we talk about is that you're on back at Stevens uh, Peak and Shriek or Greedham and Streetham. You don't have enough time with patients to learn the kinds of things that you'd have to learn or help them learn about themselves to be able to make that kind of process stick. I don't know that that's the province of, of a conference like this one. I think it's the province of a bunch of conferences and papers, but I think that's, that's where a lot of that challenge lies. And now back to Roger. I hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Louise Campbell and Rachel Zayas will be at the Fifth Global Nash Congress next month in London, and we will have an episode with Jorn, Louise, Rachel, perhaps some other speakers, and me after the Congress. Next week, we will be back with Andrew Scott from Global Liver Institute and Achim Kautz from Germany to take a holistic view of the patient advocate role in fatty liver disease. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.